Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletics today on the show. It's Adam Spinella. Coach Spins is in the building. He's on week three of his cold. How's it going, buddy? I know it's a tough time for you, but hey, uh, we're, are, you, are you coming along at least? Yeah, we're hanging in, Sam. Uh, I sound as low and raspy as I have been for the last couple of weeks here, but we fight on. We keep battling. It's what we do. Uh, it's you know middle of October, a couple weeks until my basketball season starts. Shout out to all the Division three, Division two coaches and programs players who started their season this past weekend. Like It is hoop season. It's here. Uh, NBA is a couple days away. So, I mean, I'm as excited as anybody. I'm not letting this cold drag me down. No way. That's right. We are a couple of days away from the NBA season. We're a couple of days away from uh, spins having to figure out his life here in terms of uh, <laughs> coaching basketball and whether or not his voice will continue to allow him to do so. Yeah. Uh, it's great. We're, we're all good here. So today, the docket on the show is that we're going to talk all of the uh, Warriors machinations over the course of yesterday, the Andrew Wiggins extension, the Jordan Poole extension, what it all means for Draymond Green, what it all means for them moving forward, everything like that. Then we're going to talk about the Brandon Clark extension, four years, 52 million. Seems like a reasonable number for the Memphis Grizzlies. Then we're going to do a 2023 We're going to dive deep into the bigs. Did the screen go black for you there, Spins, for a second? That was a bit strange. A quick second there. Not sure whose uh, who's internet that's on, but I'm with you now. We're talking bigs. We're talking Brandon Clark. We're talking Warriors. So let's start with the Warriors. Yeah. The Warriors signed Jordan Poole to a four-year, $123 million extension with potential escalators that can bring it north of what, like 140-ish, something like that. It's like right around 140 is the number that was originally reported. Then our Anthony Slater at The Athletic came in and gave us the actual number. I believe that Jordan Poole's contract next year will start at $27.2 million. Then the Warriors made another piece of nice business. Signed Andrew Wiggins to a four-year, $109 million extension. Wiggins, as people know, has long been considered one of the most overpaid, et cetera, players in the NBA. Having said that, he undeniably took like a pretty real discount here to stay in the Bay. Uh, this is a guy that I cannot imagine getting under $30 million a year. Uh, if he would have hit the open market this offseason. He is someone that a team would have absolutely sold themselves on, especially given the way that the cap is going to rise moving forward. Having said that, I don't necessarily think this is like a bad deal for Andrew Wiggins, if only just because he's finally found a home. He's finally found somewhere he's very comfortable as a player. It all makes sense. Let's dive into pool first, though, 
before we get into what all of this means for the Warriors. Too much, too little, right on track. What do you think about this number for Jordan Poole? I think it's a good number. Uh, I think that the Warriors are going to continue to bank on growth for Poole, that he can be somebody that handles a little bit more with the ball in his hands of you know, a really large, consistent role within their offense. I think that the the contract is slated to really have this be the baton going from a Clay Thompson type of piece next to Steph Curry towards Jordan Poole, really serving that role first and foremost and locking him up for you know a, a long term. I, financially, if we're looking at you know com- trying to compare apples to apples as best we can. It's very similar to the Tyler Hero deal that you and I talked about a yes. couple weeks ago. Very, very similar. And I think that's because they're similar type of players, not just in terms of what they do on the court, but their overall impact on the teams that they play on. Uh, certainly, Pools is slightly lesser than Heroes just because there's so many more pieces offensively that Golden State has to incorporate. But I, I like the deal for the Warriors. I think that he has shown he continues to get better uh, year after year and just love having explosive shooting guards that you can go to either on your bench or eventually in the starting rotation. It's not an accident that this deal got done in wake of the Tyler Hero deal, and it's not an accident that this looks very similar to the Tyler Hero deal. Uh, These are two players that, like you said, uh, are on very similar trajectories in terms of where their careers are headed. Both have incredible high-level on-ball abilities to create their own shot. Both are unbelievable shooters. Both are uh, 20-point-per-game scorers. Uh, I zero doubts that Jordan Poole, uh, in a larger role than what he's in in Golden State, would be incredibly effective uh, as a player being able to get more shots than what he currently gets. And I feel the same about Tyler Hero, for what it's worth as well. Both have defensive concerns, as Steve Kerr alluded to in his press conference today when they discussed these uh, extensions, saying the goal is now to get Jordan Poole on the court for more than 17 minutes per game in the playoffs, something that Steve Kerr did not feel comfortable doing last year because of his defensive ability. Having said that, I think you can improve enough defensively to where this is a good number. And again, for both of these deals, I will go into my spiel about why this is essentially what it costs to lock down a 20-point-per-game scorer moving forward. The cap is about to rise. The NBA is about to sign an enormous television deal that is going to see the cap skyrocket in some respect. It remains unclear what the exact number is going to be, but it's not impossible that the cap gets to like 160, $170 million, uh, in three or four years at this point. Uh, the middle of this contract for Jordan Poole, there's a real chance that this is a discount contract, not a contract that is considered an overpay. Uh, you know, for next season, is it probably an overpay? Maybe to an extent. I, I can see a case for that. But at the end of the day, you are what you're worth. And I see zero doubt that a team like Orlando, who has been rumored uh, to be in the Jordan Poole market, uh, would have maxed him this summer. Uh, it wouldn't have even been a question in my mind. They would have absolutely given him the full boat in order to sign him. So the Warriors get him at a slight discount on the max, but at a number that works somewhat within their cap. Now let's play the same game. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I just I, I think that that's that's right on there with with Jordan Poole. I, my big thing is we're trying to assign market value 
to a contract without fully knowing what the market actually is. Because we don't know what the salary cap numbers and everything is going to be. This is an estimation on value. And the, the closest we can get, like we said, is comparing it to the Tyler Hero deal. In that regard, I think both contracts look fine. Yeah. Okay. I will ask the same question now of Andrew Wiggins. Four years, $109 million last year player option, it seems like, reportedly. Too much, too little, just right for Andrew Wiggins. I definitely expected Wiggins to get more. Um, that said, he's coming off an all-star campaign and has looked the best that he's looked in his entire career. And there's no accident for that. A lot of that has to do with the role that he fills in Golden State where he's not the number one option every single time down in the half court trying to create for his teammates. He's settled into more of a third option type of role, really good energetic defender who uses all of his athletic tools on that end of the floor. It's a perfect role for him. And if we're going to go based on that type of role while averaging somewhere between 17 to 21 points a game, this feels slightly underpaid and valued in that regard. But I think that there's also, and this is you know, the elephant in the room that we haven't mentioned yet, is the luxury tax conversation with Golden State. I think that I want to I want to table that real quick, Spence, because sure. I, I want to get to that in the next little part of this here. I completely agree with you that that's an incredibly relevant yeah. topic here, but I, I want to talk about the Wiggins part of it first because I think that um, I do just want to note how crazy this is that Andrew Wiggins is going to be on, on the Golden State Warriors for yeah. this number moving yeah. forward here. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Wiggins is worth $30 million a year in this new marketplace. Like no questions asked and he's taking less. He was asked about it during the press conference that I alluded to earlier. He said, you never know what the future holds. I'm happy here. We have a chance to do something special. I have no regrets signing this contract. And I think that that's an important part of this. He's finally found happiness after years of getting shit on after years of, you know, being questioned after, uh, a guy that was referred to as Maple Jordan, basically uh, the next coming. Like he was another of those guys in the long line since LeBron James that has been considered the next LeBron or the next Kobe, right? And he's not that, but he is a very good player. And he's someone that is between that like high-end starter, low-end all-star level. And that guy gets paid $30 million within the new paradigm of what, the NBA salary marketplace is at this point. So for him to take four years, one Oh nine, which, you know, you, you can compare it to the RJ Barrett deal. You can compare it to a number of other deals on the marketplace that have recently been signed. It's a great contract. Andrew Wiggins is absolutely worth more than this, but it's important to note, like Andrew Wiggins has the security already to be able to sign this. Whereas like someone like Jordan pool can't take a discount, Right. Andrew Wiggins at the end of this season will have made $170 million in his career. Uh, Jordan Poole will have made something like $12 million, $10 million, <laughs> something like yeah. that. Uh, Andrew Wiggins has the ability to take a discount here in order to be happy. And I think that that is what is really, really important to consider here. Uh, not everyone's circumstance is the same. And I love that Andrew Wiggins is doing this. Like, I love that. He's found happiness and this is where he's going to stay. You know, he averaged 17 points, four rebounds, two assists per game while shooting 47% from the field, 39% from three last season. Numbers that don't blow you off the page, but whenever you're considering the fact that he's the fourth option and then also is a very, very high level switchable defender now. Yeah. 
he's awesome. This is this is a great deal for Golden State. It's a great deal. Yep, a great deal for them, and and I think a really good one for Wiggins too. We're going to look at this from a financial perspective and say, you know what, he might not be getting as much as he could at other places. Therefore, is it a bad deal? But you heard his tenor in the press conference today. Uh, this is a guy who is really thriving within their system there in Golden State and understands this is the best place for him to continue to play a game that maximizes who he can be on an NBA floor. So I think that there might be some amount of, I don't want to call it a hometown discount, but he's willing to take a little bit less to make sure that the team around him remains competitive in the future as this luxury tax situation happens, as there's a next growth of the of the cap here. Uh, and that's a good thing for Wiggins because he needs to be surrounded by other good players. Okay. So now let's get to the thing that you wanted to bring up the luxury tax. So Joe Lacob has been like fairly clear that he doesn't really want to get above the $400 million number in terms of total salary plus luxury tax number. Um, that is just crazy to me. I mean, this team just absolutely prints money in a very real way that many teams don't. Um, essentially, Joe Lacob has said like they don't want to increase the number above like $190 million, essentially. Uh, Draymond Green can be a free agent this summer. He has a player option for $27.2 million, which, strangely, is actually the number that Jordan Poole is likely to slot into next year, assuming he doesn't make some of these uh, what are classified as unlikely incentives right now. I, I just... Bob Myers spoke today. He said that these are decisions we have to make after the season. We're not worried about it right now. We'll figure it out afterward. And he's right. The Warriors are set for what their luxury tax bill is going to be this year. They're not set for the luxury tax bill until the end of next year. They have a lot of time to be able to figure this out. They basically have like 18 months to be able to figure out next year's luxury tax. I think it's smart to just lock down Jordan Poole and Andrew Wiggins and figure this out later. But there is some sort of toll coming here. And you do wonder what this means moving forward for the Warriors. So I, I will give you the floor. You wanted to bring up the tax earlier. I mean, wh- where are we at with what we think this means for where they go uh, in their next steps? Well, you got to wonder what it means first and foremost for Draymond Green. That's that's really the big elephant in the room right here because we talk about Jordan Poole slotting into that spot. Does a long-term kind of cash-in for Draymond Green if he tries to get that and stay in Golden State happen? That just blows up the tax bill a little bit further. Um, you know, they've got a couple younger guys on their roster that seem and feel young right now. But if we're talking about the end of next year, by the time these luxury tax payments are really going to be due, that's when James Wiseman and Moses Moody will come off of their rookie deals. So no longer do you have two potentially uh, talented rotational players that are under fantastic team control contracts. Well, and and let me be clear on, on Wiseman too. Yeah. Wiseman is already making 12 million next yep. year. And I'll talk about that in a minute, but Wiseman is on a big contract as it is by being the number two overall pick. Right. So a lot of these, you know, smaller, like Wiseman's is not a small number by any means, but smaller in comparison to the stars that they have. They've got to be able to figure out what's the right pathway forward. Like I, I keep thinking that the long-term 
luxury tax ramifications all boil down to the importance of this year evaluating those younger guys and figuring out who is really worth keeping long-term, who they can build around, and then what is the right time to cash out if they realize that's not going to be in their long-term plans. So given that Andrew Wiggins is basically taking less to stay with Golden State, like he'll be making like $10 million less, and then Jordan Poole will be making basically like $24 million more. They basically have to find $14 million somewhere. Like that, that's what they have to do. They have to find that number somewhere, you know, say it's 15, say it's 13. They have to find something in that $14 million range in order to make this work. Draymond Green is $27 million. You know, maybe, maybe you can get a couple of million back if he sign if he declines the player option and signs like a 480 or something to stay. Right. Uh, but I think that they're going to be smart about this and they're going to make a decision here based off of where they're looking into the future. And I think that how Draymond Green plays this year is going to be the critical factor here. Draymond Green is their easiest way to make this work. It doesn't make it the best way to make this work. And there are other ways that I'll kind of discuss here in a minute. Um, Draymond Green, just allowing him to depart, that is the most expedient way to get their salary under the threshold that ownership seems to want to get under. Having said that Draymond Green's really fucking good at basketball. Like this is the thing losing Draymond Green. Like you even see him in the preseason doing Draymond Green things. He looks like he's ready this season to like come out and win defensive player of the year. Like he is not here to mess around. He understands this is his last chance at a payday. He understands it seems like that what he did with Jordan Poole punching him in the face was an incredible fuck up and that he is ready to step up and just prove his worth to the Golden State Warriors. Now, what does that mean moving forward? And what does that mean in terms of can he prove that he is worth building around long-term? We'll see. $27 million off the books next year, though, is something that's doable. Jonathan Kaminga looks really, really good this preseason as well. Moses Moody has looked pretty good so far this preseason. James Wiseman looks like he's ready to step in and play a role at the very least. I'm not totally sure if that's 20 minutes off the bench, if he looks like a legitimate starter, we'll see, right? I don't think we have a great indication there yet. But there are other ways to get under this number than losing Draymond Green. Where, where are you kind of settling in on this as we kind of move into this part of the conversation where the Warriors are going to be paying an exorbitant number of like tax dollars into perpetuity, it seems like, and have an ability to either expediently get off this with Draymond Green or to try and keep Draymond and kind of maneuver around it a little bit. So I am uh, I am not a self self professed cap expert. Like it's just not you know, all of the machinations and the maneuvering in order to make some of this work creatively I, don't come to me very easily. So I don't want to weigh in too much on. I would take Draymond and then figure it out because I don't know how plausible that necessarily is. That said, I'm keeping Draymond around if I can, because it's the proven recipe to maximizing your championship window. If you let Draymond walk and he's the kind of cap casualty 
of all of this. You're taking away one of the biggest pieces of why the Warriors have been a championship caliber team that makes them worth going into the luxury tax over. Uh, It's really hard for me to envision what the Warriors would do with Steph, Poole, Clay, Wiggins, and no front court passing, facilitating focal point on offense or a a meister on the defensive end who ties everything together and is able to make a pool curry backcourt work. Why are you paying everybody else if you don't have Draymond still around to clean that up? I agree with you, to be honest. And I think it's way harder to find Draymond Green than it is to find Clay Thompson. To be honest, it's way harder to find Draymond Green in terms of playmaking, in terms of defensive value, in terms of toughness. And this is no slight at Clay, and I'm not even suggesting to move Clay, by the way. Like, that's not where I'm going with this. I just think that finding everything he does in a single player is exceptionally difficult to find. And I think the Warriors, you know, they might make the case that they've. Jonathan Kaminga and Jonathan Kaminga looks like he has taken a leap as a passer and processor of the game this preseason. He's not going to be anywhere near the defensive player Draymond Green is because Draymond Green is probably one of the 10 best defensive players of all time. Like this is, this is where we are with the modern game. There is no more valuable defensive player than Draymond Green in the playoffs period. He is a significant part of the reason that they won the title last year. So, how do we make up this $14 million? To me, and I know that like Joe Lacob has been very clear that he loves James Wiseman and that he absolutely is all in on the Wiseman experience and that he wants to build for the future long term and that he's trying to you know, make that work, right? Like he doesn't just care about winning a title this year. He cares about building a product that long-term is going to win basketball games. There, I, I will find it hard to believe that James Wiseman is going to be worth $12 million next season to this specific Golden State Warriors team. Maybe you can sell yourself on him being long-term. Maybe you can sell yourself on him being like an all-star into the future. If you think that, then you keep James Wiseman and you let go of Draymond Green. I'm not quite there on Wiseman personally. And while Joe Lacob very clearly has like a very different opinion of James Wiseman than I do, Joe Lacob has also been very clear about the money here and money talks for billionaire owners, especially when they're going to have to pay $400 million in salary plus luxury tax. I really wonder if the move here is just to move James Wiseman. And I've kind of been talking about this for a while now, and I know the Warriors fans don't like when I do it, but if the question is moving James Wiseman or moving Draymond Green, and like you can get close in terms of the salary that you need to get rid of by moving Wiseman. And look, there, there's more going on here in terms of yeah. just like on-court play yeah. and salary sheets and everything like that. If Draymond Green can't reintegrate himself to the roster long-term and, because he punched Jordan Poole in the face and Jordan Poole is like, fuck this guy, like I want him out of here in six months or whatever because it hasn't worked out, 
then that's a problem. And, you know, I would imagine that the Golden State Warriors probably would let Draymond Green go at that point. There's not any indication of that yet. But if that was to happen, I think that would be, I think that they would probably pick Jordan Poole. And I think they'd probably pick Andrew Wiggins over Draymond Green. You don't have to pick James Wiseman over Draymond Green, though. And getting rid of Wiseman gets you very close to the number that you have to get to. Uh, yeah, we, just, we haven't seen enough Wiseman to, in order to entertain the discussion of should you keep him over Draymond Green? Like at this point, he hasn't proven anything because he hasn't been able to stay healthy and be on the floor. But yes. that's where the the timeline really matters in a lot of this. If Golden State yes. is going to maximize the value of trading him and clearing up that space, maybe they do it by the trade deadline this year where they trade him out, they get some sort of a veteran on an expiring contract that can come in, and then next year that contract's off the books. Now all of a sudden that's, boom, negative 12 or whatever that was supposed to be with Wiseman's number. Like, Is that the best way forward to do it? I don't know, but that all brings it full circle to how important it is for Wiseman and these other younger guys to really show what they're worth this year yeah. so that they can the front office can have a game plan moving forward. The first half of this season yeah. is exceptionally important yep. for the Warriors young guys and for the Warriors front office to evaluate these young guys to try and figure out who is a keeper. Like, look, there's a real chance James Wiseman this year goes out and is like, oh, shit, we have to keep this guy. Right. Like he has had some moments this preseason, like against the Wizards that we talked about, uh, what, two weeks ago, I guess, yeah. at this yeah. point, um, where it's been like oh, no, you might be something a little bit different than what you and I have previously thought. Um, if he's that, then you keep him. But my point in all of this is not to say, like, they have to move James Wiseman or they have to move Draymond Green. It's just to say that this doesn't mean the writing is, like, over with Draymond Green and that the writing is on the wall and that this is the last dance for the Warriors and everything like that. Right. They have different ways that they can make this work. Maybe it is Draymond Green that goes. Maybe this is a last dance situation. We figure that out by game 20. Or maybe it doesn't have to be because they look great and you want to keep this core together because they've been the core that's led you to four titles already. And why wouldn't you keep them together? So it's just a fascinating they're in a fascinating situation. It's something that I think Clay Thompson alluded to recently in a press conference. He was like, I don't know that there's ever been a team quite like what we're doing where we are essentially building for the future as well as competing at the highest level at the present. Yeah. Uh, it is a very difficult needle that the Warriors front office and ownership is trying to thread and it's possible it works. We'll see. Yeah. The last thing I'll say on Wiseman, I, I was a really big fan of him pre-draft, but he played what four five games at Memphis he basically made a leap going from high school to the NBA where he's played a handful of games. It seems like I, I know he's played closer to, you know, half of a season's worth, but man, it just seems like we haven't been able to see what he can grow into. And that's particularly challenging at the big man position when reps are incredibly important on the defensive end of the floor. So this is crucial time for Wiseman and he's got to show that, He's matured and learned a lot from the sidelines over the last couple of years, which is really hard for young bigs to do. Yeah. Um, let's move to the Brandon Clark of it all. Sure. 
Brandon Clark signs a four-year, $52 million extension. Seems like a reasonable deal to me across the board, right? Like Brandon Clark is a valuable player. Uh, he is now going to be starting, it seems like, for the Memphis Grizzlies while Jaron Jackson is out. He's been productive in the minutes he's played. Uh, he is a switchable defender who can do a lot of different things, although I don't think he's quite been as good as good defensively as some people like myself, Coleswicker, when he was on the show, uh, kind of thought he would be. I-, I thought he would be just like utterly elite defensively, and he's just like good on that end. Uh, but he is very effective offensively, has the funky floater game, has uh, real rim running ability. There's a lot to like about Brandon Clark, and this deal just kind of makes sense. Four years, 52, $52 million. This is what the going rate is for guys like this, it feels like. Yep, very much so. And again, another one of those deals where we're going to look back in two, maybe three years once that cap takes another rise and say, man, that's a real bargain for a high-end role player like him. Uh, so I have no problem with Memphis starting to lock up that core. I know we're talking a lot from the team perspective here, Sam. So the one mm-hmm. thing moving forward is Memphis has a ton of these younger guys that are going to be coming due for their own payday in the next year, two years, three years. So wondering how much money they're going to be able to set aside and save for every single one of them is always going to be something that they have to budget in well in advance. But I don't think that this is a domino that's going to prevent something else from falling down the line. It's not large enough of a deal financially. And quite frankly, it's good value at a position that they need. The last thing that the Grizzlies are going to want is for Darren Jackson to be out for the start of the year, Brandon Clark to blow up. And now all of a sudden that paycheck he's due in July is going to be a hell of a lot larger. So I think the timing was right on Memphis's part to lock this in now. What have you thought of Brandon Clark's development thus far in his career? So I wasn't as big of a fan as guys like you and Cole were coming out of the draft. I had some severe... By, by the way, like yeah. I had him like late lottery. Cole had him like top five or six in that class, yeah, and if I, I think, remember correctly. I think I had him in the mid-20s, I want to say, mid to late 20s. So I was a little bit lower than that even. Yeah. Uh, you know, solid role player in a lot of different regards. I struggle sometimes with trying to anticipate... You know, I think the NBA has been a lot more four out, one in, if not five out at times over the past. So playing two bigger guys who I think are questionable shooters in some regard or or best served as screen and roll, rim running, energy type of of bigger bodies, I think playing a lot of them is is challenging to do at the same time. But uh, I think think Clark has been very, very solid and dependable on the defensive end of the floor and has – created a niche for himself on offense as you talked about with that floater that kind of mid-range game where I have really no problem with him being a a rotational guy on a good team so with the Grizzlies it's worth noting in terms of their cap sheet they have extended Steven Adams at like right around 12.6 million dollars per year they have now extended Brandon Clark on a contract that I would imagine with the way that their cap sheet is kind of uh you know, kind of listed essentially uh, or the way it's like formulated that they'll have that be an escalating contract and it'll start around like 11 and a half to 12 million uh, for next season. So they've taken off like $24 million of potential space that they could have had next summer. Uh, they, they could have actually been like pretty real players in free agency and look like you can get off of money. If you have to, you can sign and trade guys salary cap space is like almost like a construct now (laughs) like you can figure out different ways to make what you need to work work right um 
but at the end of the day, this is just kind of, uh, it's interesting that they are committing to this young core, but it's not surprising given everything we know about the Memphis Grizzlies and what they're about at this point. Uh, they really like their young guys. They really trust their developmental uh culture they really trust their identification of talent and they really trust their identification of human beings i think as well that fit together in terms of being just high level character guys and brandon clark's another one of those guys right like there's there's no reason to not buy into this moving forward yep and clark you know he may be best served being more of a bench defender like energy type of guy that plays more against second units I worry a little bit more in Memphis about him and Stephen Adams sharing the floor together. I think, and it seems like Memphis has done this a little bit, starting Santi Aldama, the the pride of Loyola University from right down the road, a little bit more in that Jaron Jackson spot. I think that that's more sensical rotation to me. Uh, But I understand that Clark is much more farther along in his NBA development than a guy like Aldama. I would expect him to see plenty of minutes early on. Yeah, I want to shout out Jason Crawford in the comments on YouTube for noting that that Santi has been starting. End of the day, like I think Brandon Clark's going to close games while Jaron Jackson's yeah. out. Yep. Um, I'm I'm not real worried about like you know the the starting versus closing kind of thing. Uh, like I think that closing is more important. I guess uh, Brandon will be their like key front front court piece until Jaron comes back and there's a chance that within these next two months, we see this as a contract that is a real, real uh, discount, I think moving forward. Yeah. Yep. And it's also going to set the tone for what a lot of future kind of, you know, bench guys are going to be getting on their rookie extensions moving into this next salary cap. So the last thing here with extensions is something I did not prepare you for. Um, So I I will kind of lead this one if we need to. So obviously the rookie extension window closes this week and oh, it's interesting to try and figure out like who, who is left here that teams could look at to extend cam Johnson is one name for the Phoenix suns. Honestly, I think I would be surprised if cam Johnson extended, if only because it's hard for me to imagine that the suns are going to lock in. Uh, to this much money with this core, uh, given some of the questions that they have long term, it seems like right now with the way that they've played this preseason and on top of it, uh, just just financially, like it's a weird situation, like he's going to be entering the starting lineup. If you're him, this is really your only chance to get paid. You can't take a discount. He turns 27 this year like this because he was drafted so old in terms of like draft terminology uh for instance jordan pool i think is still 23 years old cam johnson is going to be 27 this year they need to actual like cam johnson needs to maximize his value right now uh it makes sense for someone like that to actually go to restricted free agency on top of it the ownership situation in phoenix kind of leads me to think that like they might hold off on this basically that doesn't come from like inside information that comes from like me reading the tea leaves on this. Yeah. We talked about it on another podcast, like who is going to be calling the shots and and being able to commit that type of money from an ownership perspective. If Sarver is quote unquote suspended for the year. So uh, I mean, there's Phoenix is always a tough spot to predict. Yeah. Uh, Grant Williams is another one. If I was Boston, I would probably try and lock in Grant Williams. Uh, 
to be honest. Like maybe it's three years, you know, 45 million. Maybe it's, you know, four years, 55 million or something like that. If you want to try and like do the extra number, extra year, right? Like, I don't know what the number is. I think Grant's really good. He's an awesome role player for uh, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum core. I would very strongly look into doing this and I I would probably be willing to get into like the 14 to $15 million range to do so. Yep. Totally agree. Uh, Perhaps the Celtics can look at this Brandon Clark extension as a framework to try to work around. I, I think Grant is a little bit farther along better on the offensive end of the floor, just with the consistency of his spot up jumper. Uh, but certainly, certainly think that there's some comparison to be made here. And I think those guys were drafted back to back, if I'm correct. So, um, yeah, really right, right. I think it went Thibel, Clark, Williams, back to back to back. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Chris Haynes reported that there have been what I will call brief negotiations or what Chris called, I guess, brief negotiations on a Matisse Thibel extension. That's a new terminology for me uh, in terms of reporting on negotiations on an extension. Uh, If I was the Sixers, I would not extend Matisse personally, if only because the thing that extensions do is it makes it very, very difficult to trade guys in the middle of the season. If I was the Sixers, I would want to have Matisse Thibel as a potentially interesting trade trip in the middle of the season, um, given that they have enough depth around him to make up for his loss. I, I can see a team really valuing him on the trade market if a uh, if a trade comes along that makes sense for the Sixers. Totally agree with that. And I have nothing different to add on Matisse Thibel, but with that same reasoning and rationale, I'm going to flip it to you here, Sam. Since you put me on the spot with all these rookie extensions, I'm going to put you on it a little bit right now. Does that same type of rationale of wanting the ability to perhaps trade them during the season maybe apply to Jackson Hayes in New Orleans? Yeah, I think so. I I wouldn't, I mean, Jackson Hayes is what, like the ninth or 10th guy right now in New Orleans. I I would think that, yeah, like I I don't even know what I would give him. I know he started late in the year for New Orleans, but like he was pretty effective defensively, uh, you know, as a pair with Jonas, like, yeah, I I would not extend him just given their situation right now. You've extended Larry Nance. You have Jonas, you have Zion reentering the fold. I think you have to wait. Um, the most interesting name to me is DeAndre Hunter because from what we've seen of DeAndre Hunter on the court, he has been very, very good. He has been very, very, very good, uh, in the minutes where he has been healthy. He's been a pretty effective defender. He's been a pretty effective shot creator from the mid range. Uh, he is the kind of three and D wing that can kind of create his own shot occasionally that is perfect with Trey young. It makes a lot of sense with DeJounte Murray. These guys are very hard to find, but how much do you trust them to stay healthy? Like, I, I, I don't even know what the number is, is the problem. Like OG Ananobi signed a four year, $72 million extension. Do you maybe like, you know, look back on a deal like that? in an escalating salary cap kind of scenario. And maybe it's four years, 85, something in that ballpark for DeAndre Hunter. I have, yeah, I have no idea what to make of the DeAndre Hunter kind of situation. Um, and, and a lot of it comes down to the, the changing pieces in Atlanta too, right? Like, is there going to have to be a stylistic shift in the way that they play 
now that they have DeJounte Murray in town, that makes Hunter's role, his long-term kind of trajectory next to Trey yeah. Young a little bit different. And until you know the answer to that question, you don't want to overpay if you're the Hawks because that would be really a, a tough situation to find yourself in for somebody who has an, uh, already a little bit of an injury history playing in the league. Yeah. No, I agree. That, that's that's the hard one that like I just can't figure out. Uh, Charlotte has a decision to make with PJ Washington. I I just don't know. Um, yeah. Like I don't know what Charlotte is doing right now and what their <laughs> thought process is on anything. So maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else that like really, really stands out. I guess theoretically, Kevin Porter is another one. Like Kevin Porter's counting numbers are going to be great this year. Uh, there's just obviously committing to Kevin Porter long-term uh, and giving him a big salary after some of the off-court things we've seen Kevin Porter get involved in. That feels like a difficult sell to me personally, yeah. but you know, maybe may, like it, you could sell me that Houston sees him as a long-term piece here, potentially. Uh, I don't know. Again, though, like I, I think that you have to consider what fits best around Jalen Green long term? If Kevin Porter is going to focus on being a great spot up shooter, something he showed occasionally last year, if he's going to focus on being a really high level defender, something he improved at last year, then you can absolutely sell yourself on him being a great fit next to Jalen Green. If he's going to keep making somewhat poor decisions, turn the ball over a little bit too much, take too many shots and like dominate the ball from time to time, it's not a great fit next to Jalen Green. I think that there are a number of difficult things to consider with a Kevin Porter extension. You could absolutely sell me that he's the guy to play next to Jalen Green long term, but... I don't think I'm as sold on that because I think I might want a lower usage kind of player there. But like Kevin Porter has the potential to be that lower usage player if he's willing to focus in on the right things. It's a very complicated situation that I think I would want one more year of evidence on, basically, I think is where I'm at on it. Like I, I would hold off on extending him if only because I would just want to see one more year of Kevin Porter doing the right things, staying out of trouble off the court, and being a good fit next to Jalen Green that makes sense to uh, get the most out of Jalen Green long term. Totally agree. And I think that if you're Kevin Porter, you might want another year to just run up those counting stats to show that you can be yeah. a, a, an efficient high volume creator and chase the bag a little bit more next summer when perhaps that TV contract money comes in and is even greater than we think it's going to be right now. So if I'm Porter, it's I'm not I'm not signing anything. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because like what gets Kevin Porter paid in Houston is probably different than what gets Kevin Porter paid on the open market. That's just the most comp like that's the most complicated one to me, even beyond like the DeAndre Hunter one is just like, do you trust this guy to stay healthy or not? Yes or no. With Porter, like you can absolutely sell yourself on the talent. Like he's an incredibly gifted player. And we've seen flashes of him being good at the things he needs to be good at too for it to make sense. It's just that, you know, all of the other situations he's put himself in make it difficult for you to trust him. So uh, I, I, I hope Kevin Porter like plays well this year, I I guess is what I would say. I, I, I'm, 
I'm fat. Like if I was Houston, I'd be trying to get Kevin Porter at like a significant discount. Like I'd be trying to offer him like four forty four or something like that. And if he takes okay. it, great. Uh, if not, which I wouldn't expect him to, I would just kind of be like, okay, I'm good. Yeah. Uh, let's let's see what this looks like this year. Yeah, don't take it, Kevin. Don't take it. I don't think he should take four forty four. I think he should wait and see what's there on the open market. But then again, if you're Kevin Porter and you just got traded for a fake second round pick um, because like of off court concerns by the Cleveland Cavaliers, do, do you see guaranteed forty plus million dollars and go? You know, this, this is good. I don't know. I I don't think I would advise Kevin Porter to take that deal by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, he's his talent level says he should be worth more than that, and I think if he has a good year, he will get more than that. Um, but if I was Houston, that's what I, I would be offering, trying to get a discount, and that's what I would be looking at. Um, okay, let's take a quick commercial break, and then we will dive into Bigs twenty twenty three NBA draft Bigs. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So... When I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions, just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay. We're back, Spence. 
instead of just having another Victor Wembanyama conversation, which is something we've done now like four times in the last month on this show, because this is what we do on this podcast. We talk about Victor Wembanyama, apparently, uh, which why not? He's like the best prospect to come along in a long time. I, I want to pose this to you because I think it's a more interesting angle than what we've talked about. Richard Jefferson got a lot of shit for talking about on ESPN that he thinks Victor Wembanyama would go ahead of LeBron James if both of them as prospects were in this class. I don't think that's a crazy take. I disagree with it. Yeah. I don't think it's an insane take. Yeah. I want to pose that question to you though. A do you think that Victor Wembanyama would go ahead of LeBron James, given what teams tend to value, given past history of the draft, given all of this? And second, do you think it's a crazy conversation to have? Well, I'll answer number two first. It's definitely not a crazy conversation to have. Uh, it's it's just not. Victor Wembanyama, the tools that he has, his physical size and what he's able to do with that size from both a shot-making perspective, a, a ground coverage perspective on offense, and just his defensive, not just impact, but versatility. Yeah, yep. it has to be a conversation. He's so good in so many different areas at 18. We have to be having this talk. Um, man, it's tough, though. I, I'd probably go with LeBron. Um, and, and it's so hard because I didn't watch a lot of high school LeBron. Like, that's a little bit before my time. I, I was 12 when he was drafted, you know, so YouTube. Sorry. Yeah. YouTube wasn't really a thing like hard for me to really know and, and be able to compare prospects to prospect and to not have the biased lens of how good LeBron James has actually panned out to be slash how healthy he's been relatively throughout his career. Um, That's what makes this conversation, I think, very difficult, is trying to remove what we know about LeBron now versus what it was previously. Yeah, and and I don't have as much context for what it was coming into the draft, but I will say this. I've been watching college basketball and and, prior levels to the NBA for a really long period of time. I've been doing scouting now for this is my sixth year doing this. Victor Wembanyama is head and shoulders above anyone else that I've scouted and seen during this period of time, just as a pro prospect. Yeah. So I've gone back and like really tried to get a sense of what LeBron was. Cause I, I kind of figured out, I was going to ask you this and <laughs> fuck with you a little bit on the show. Thanks, Sam. Um, I don't think he would go ahead of LeBron. I think that there are enough injury concerns about Vic that I don't think a team would sell themselves on taking him ahead of LeBron James. Uh, LeBron James, some of the stuff he was doing in high school was just an absolute joke. Like his ability to completely dominate the game, his ability to be a high level passer playmaker, like the, the combination of like Jordan and magic Johnson was like thrown around like regularly with LeBron. And I think that it's easier to sell yourself on that combination than it is on whatever Vic is, given the fact that Vic is still just very skinny. I know that like Vic has very much not lifted weights. He's tried to avoid like putting his body in any position where a team, once they get their hands on him, like there's like irreparable damage or anything like that. Right. 
that he's been hurt. Like he's nothing long-term, nothing serious, like no, nothing you can point to and be like, Oh, that's a problem. Like going forward into his future. But like, he misses a month here. He misses a month there. Like it's not, it's not like he needs to stay healthy this year. I think that's what teams most want to see. Like they want to see Vic be 100% healthy throughout the course of this year. I think LeBron would go ahead of Victor Wimanyama. I think Vic would go ahead of Anthony Davis. I think Vic would go ahead of a lot of the guys that have been taken since LeBron. I think basically everyone since LeBron. I think that's what we're talking about here. Uh, and it, it was surprising. Look, I guess it's not surprising to me that Richard Jefferson got a lot of shit for saying this because it's the internet and everyone's going to throw a lot of shit at people for saying things that could be perceived as outlandish. But I do get where Richard Jefferson's coming from. Richard Jefferson's a little bit older than we are. Comes from a era where the big man was valued more than it is now. Um, you know, throughout the course of history, bigs have gone number one ahead of guards, right? Like Akeem Olajuwon over Michael Jordan. You just kind of look down the line. Like it's been a consistent part of the NBA draft that guys who are seven foot tall tend to go ahead of guys that are six foot six. Cause it's harder to find guys that are seven foot tall theoretically. But as we've moved into the modern era of basketball where positional scarcity and finding two way wings is the most valuable thing you can find on the court. It's different now than it was then. And I think that if this was 2005, or even like 2000 or something, I might be willing to hear the argument that a team would take Vic ahead of LeBron. I don't think it would be a thing now. Like I think LeBron would like undeniably go ahead of Victor Wimbanyama. But back when teams didn't have as much information, back when scouting was a little bit harder, back when you know, things were a little bit more difficult. But then again, like, I guess that taking the Euro guy, number one, back in 2003 was probably like a non-starter on some level um, when someone like LeBron is sitting there. So maybe not. Maybe he wouldn't even go number one then. Um, But yeah, like, I I think that it's not like the craziest conversation to me. So like, I'm not, I'm not surprised that Richard Jefferson got shit for it, but I think it was like a little bit undeserved that Richard Jefferson got shit for this. Yeah. Well, and it's also hard to look back at that era and know would Victor Wembanyama have been enabled by his current team, his NBA team to play in the style right. that he plays in as a seven foot four guy. Are they going to let him handle with the ball in his hands, push up right. tempo in transition, shoot as many threes as he does. That wasn't something that we saw 20 years ago. So right. there's so much about this that is, you know, comparing apples to oranges just because the game has changed so much. Well, you know, like one of the things I've done as well is like gone back to try and watch Kareem, uh, like at UCLA, trying to find like as many clips as I can, trying to find like as many little like things as I can. Um, Ralph Sampson, Arvita Sabonis, all of the great like young players throughout history. Over the course of the last like three weeks, I've tried to watch as much as I can in order to contextualize what Victor Wembanyama is and what he's not. I would be so fascinated to know what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would have looked like in the modern era. It's a joke. <laughs> like anything that's available online and like, there's not like a crazy amount of like UCLA clips that are available online of Kareem, but anything that's available, it's like, Oh my God, this is yeah. like not, 
this is not human in the same way that we're talking about Vic being like not human. He just completely changed like the geometry and trajectory of the game. They banned dunking for a decade in college basketball because Kareem was so good. Like think about that. That's how good this guy was that they couldn't allow him to dunk anymore because otherwise it would be too hard to stop him and there would be no competitiveness within the sport. Yeah, that's something. That's something. <laughs> Just think about that. That's crazy. That's how good Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a.k.a. Lou Alcindor at the time, was. Yeah. He was so good, they banned dunking. Well, now I'm trying to think about what the equivalent would be for you know somebody in today's game like for Victor Weminyama what would you ban like rebound and run ability would you just ban blocking yeah, shots yeah you have to you have to outlet the ball before yeah. you get to half court or something like that as a yeah. rebounder yeah. or like you uh you know if you're above 7 foot tall you couldn't shoot threes like something like that right like yeah. it's just it's ridiculous that that's that's so that's how good cream was though and it's like He's trying to contextualize Vic. It's it's like within that like ballpark to me. But to get back to the original point, like I often wonder, like Kareem very clearly had great touch, right? Like I wonder if he would have been able to step back and shoot threes. I don't know. Yeah, we'll never know. Like I feel I feel like he might have. Like Ralph Sampson, for instance, I think Ralph Sampson definitely could have. Yeah. Because like part of his game was you know, taking like 18 footers, 20 footers, something like that. You know, he'd maybe take like one a game. It felt like from what I've seen, and I've seen more of Ralph Sampson than I have of Kareem. Cause I've been able to go back. Like there's, there's just more out there of Ralph Sampson just cause more of his games, it seems were like televised in a real substantial way yeah. uh, being, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, as opposed to Kareem who was in the late sixties. Um, yeah, no, it's fascinating. Uh, that's how good Vic the Vic is though. He's in that conversation with LeBron. Uh, he's more in the conversation with LeBron and like Anthony Davis than he is like the Andrew Wiggins, you know, et cetera, guys that were the next LeBron uh, previously. Yep. Yep. No doubt about it. So, okay. Let's get into the non Victor Wembenyama bigs in this class. There are some really interesting ones, right? Like, uh, Derek Lively, Kalel Ware, GJ, Jackson, Jarris Walker. I'll give you the floor. Who do you want to start with out of that group of four? Yeah, I'm going to start with Lively. Uh, I think at, at Duke, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to have been watching him for a number of years just because I coached in an area very close to where he was, uh, you know, recruited guys that were his high school teammates. So I watched him play and practice as early as a sophomore. So uh, this is a guy I've been keeping my eye on for a long period of time. I look at the modern game for bigs in the NBA, and in order to be a high-value return on a lottery pick, you've probably got to be really good on the defensive end as a rim protector, have some form of switchability on the perimeter uh, to be able to move your feet in isolations or, or switch situations, be really efficient as a finisher near the basket, as a pick and roll or a lob threat in the dunker spot, and hopefully be able to stretch the floor a little bit more on the offensive end, whether that's as a shooter or as a passer playmaker. I I think that I've seen snippets of Lively's game where he shows the ability to check all four of those boxes. This year at Duke is going to be huge for the consistency 
at which he, he does that both on the defensive end of whether he's asked to switch or play more and drop coverage and try to protect the basket. And then on the offensive end, is he really efficient around the basket because he's a little bit on the thinner side. Uh, so I think that some physical guys might be able to get into his legs a little bit, push, push him farther away. And then is he going to be able to stretch the floor consistently? I buy his jump shot form, but what I buy more than shooting mechanics is shooting efficiency. Does the ball go into the basket? So those are the things that I'm looking for at Lively, but he starts with a, a really, really uh, uh, just a great bag of tools from to be able to work with because he's seven foot one, seven foot two, really long, really good playing in, in transition, and just uh, has already flashed some really interesting things to me. So Derek Lively was the number one recruit in this yep. class, right? And it's interesting to me that he is not anywhere near a consensus top 10 pick when you talk to scouts. Um, And I think the reason for that is what scouts now look for at the center position in terms of being a genuine difference maker at the center position is the ability to put the ball on the deck, the ability to create marginal inefficiencies against the defense by being able to make plays with the ball in your hand and be an offensive creator. I have not seen Derek Lively do any of that. Derek Lively's skill set is plays really, really hard consistently, like really, really has a high motor, which is awesome. He has potential to shoot it. Shot like 27% from three is like the numbers I've seen, you know, something in that ballpark, but like real, real chance to shoot it at some point in his case. Right. Great rim protector, like elite, elite, elite yeah. rim protector. Seven yeah. foot one, seven foot two, seven foot one and a half, maybe. I don't, I haven't seen yeah. anything listing him at seven foot two, um, with like a seven foot seven wingspan, like exceptional length. And has potential to move his feet away from the basket. It's almost like a Tyson Chandler more than it's, yeah. you know, Carl Towns, Nikola Jokic, etc. And those guys are just like a little bit less valuable mm-hmm. than the antithesis and the, you know, vice versa of this. Right. So I have, I really like lively. And I think that like, he has a real chance to be an impact player. Like I, I have seen like very high level excitement about guys like Deron Holmes and a lot of excitement about, um, and I really like Deron Holmes and we'll talk about him in a minute and guys like James Najee and guys that are just smaller than he is and play with a similar skill set. And like have even like less potential to shoot, I think, than what Derek Lively does. Derek Lively being seven foot one with a seven foot seven wingspan and being able to do some of this stuff is a yeah. big differentiator that I think people are underrating. Yeah. Um, while also playing with exceptional motor and high level like um like consistency. Like you can yeah. just count on him to bring it every single night. He's got great intangibles. He's an awesome kid. Everybody who I know has been around around him absolutely loves him and, and raves about his work ethic. So I think that those are going to be one some of the reasons he might sneak yeah. into the back half of the the top ten or the lottery is that yeah. he's really dependable. And there's going to be some point in the draft conversation when dependability and production is a lot more appealing than a high risk, high reward type of situation. But because of that, his draft position is likely going to be dependent on how everything else shakes out in this class. Uh, just on his game alone, I am a really big fan, though, Sam. Yeah, like I, I think that 
out of this group, he has the highest likelihood to be a starting NBA center. Yes. Yep. Uh, probably has, for instance, like let's move to Kalel Ware now. Yeah. Uh, I think he has a lower upside than Kalel Ware, Definitely. but I have way more faith in Derek Lively being starting center in the NBA. So give me the breakdown on Kalel Ware. Yeah, Ware uh, flashes a lot more enticing high upside tools. You know, you talked about the ability to put the ball on the floor. That's something that he's shown in spurts that he's able to do. He has shown a little bit more, not just shooting from three, but even pull-up shooting from three, self-creation, and and just the confidence that he has to be able to do those things, along with seven-foot size, really good leaping ability off the floor, solid shot-blocking instincts that he's already shown. Like there's a lot of, of boom potential for him if you invest in him and you're able to develop all of those skills in the right way. But consistency and his motor have been issues in ways that aren't with a guy like Derek Lively. Uh, I think that there's a little bit more of a, I don't want to call it a positioning issue, but he's just not as polished and consistent on the defensive end of standing where he needs to stand. He can be a little bit foul prone at times. I don't think he's always been in the best shape of his life from a cardiovascular standpoint that he needs to be in. Like there are some times when you can see the highlights and he just jumps off the page at you because he has freakish talent and upside. But if you actually watch the game film, he, he has some habits that he needs to break. Yeah. And it's like balance and fluidity. Like, I mean, this guy is a ridiculous athlete for being seven foot tall. Um, coordinated like can put the ball in deck great great hand eye coordination can really shoot it like you said or at least has potential to shoot it at a very high level um yeah i don't i have not seen much defensively that makes me go that's the guy like it's it's just not consistent on that end of the floor in a way that really worries me. It, it feels like he blocks shots because he's seven feet tall and athletic, not because he yeah. knows how to play defense yet. And yeah, that's because he's be... like processing things quickly and right. like making great rotations and like is there, right? It's right. yeah. I'm a little bit worried. A little like he, he could go like seventh in this class or he could go like 27th. I feel like, yep. and it wouldn't surprise me. Big boomer bust potential for him, but certainly from an upside perspective, belongs in the same conversation of Lively, maybe even a little bit higher of just if he really hits, this is a top 10 pick. Yeah, like I would be surprised if Derek Lively went below like 20th, I think. Like I I would say like somewhere between like 8 and 20 is probably Derek Lively's range. I would say like 8 and 40 is Khalil Ware's range. (laughs) Like it's just wider. It's just like all over the map. I feel like depending on what his defense looks like this season. Um, And like, by the way, Oregon has like replacement options. If it's not working, like Nefali Dante is, you know, a former five-star recruit uh, that has, you know, gotten better at the very least over the course of his collegiate career. I've never really been a fan, but like I, I get the appeal of someone like that for the collegiate game, especially now that he's an upperclassman Um, like Quincy Garrier. Like you can play small with him at the five. Like if you really want to, you can play him at the four. If you really want to like there's Oregon doesn't have to play Kalel Ware. like it's not like a situation where he's the only option. So he needs to come ready to like be an impact player defensively from day one. And I don't know, like, let's, let's, let's see what it looks like, I guess is what I would say. Uh, There's a real chance he is ready. And if he is, I mean, we're we're all way underrating Oregon if he's ready to go from the jump because 
that team, like, I think people are way underrating Will Richardson. I liked getting Cuisinard, the, like, redshirt senior that uh, came from South Carolina. Um, Keyshawn Bartholomew was, like, one of the most underrated transfers in the country. Like, it's a good group. It's a really, really good group of guys there, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And Dana Altman is one of the more underrated coaches in the country. Like, he consistently gets his team winning 20 games and going to the NCAA tournament. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, let's move on. Next up is Gigi Jackson, one of the most interesting prospects in this yeah. class by far. 6'9", uh, pretty strong for being an 18-year-old, uh, a real athlete, great transition player. Uh, I really like his – defensive instincts for the most part more than like the offensive skill level right now very good athlete like ridiculous out in transition has potential to shoot it but defensively he is where he can be an impact player using his length using his uh coordination using his athleticism potential to be like a switchable small ball five or to just be like a switchable four right like there's a lot there that really makes sense for Gigi jackson i'm just worried about him being like an 18-year-old whose half-court offensive game is a little bit raw, stepping in immediately and like being, you know, the highest level expectations as an in-state player at South Carolina for a new coach, like coming in and trying to establish things. That that feels like a complicated situation to be entering. You're taking the words right out of my mouth there. And I'm really glad that you brought up the, you know, maybe the lack of synergy between what he's prepared for and the production that he's going to be expected to, to bring forward for the game. And, and what he can be long-term as right. well. Like what, what he is now is different than what he can be long-term because he's so young. And that's where I think the biggest lesson that we've gained, I know we've talked about this in some, some different areas of guys like, uh, you know, Patrick Baldwin jr., or uh, maybe even Peyton Watson, like guys who don't perform really well on the offensive end of the floor. They're one year in college, but we've seen the upside, these different areas before. How much is the offensive tape really going to matter from a draft context? Because he, maybe he's never asked to be a number one or even a number two option on the offensive end again. If he's good enough defensively, if he's athletic enough and someone believes that they can turn him into a solid, like, screen and roll for a man who can occasionally hit really open, you know, spot up jumpers. He's probably still a lottery pick. Like it doesn't necessarily matter what type of offensive production he brings to the table. this Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, If he's just like a screen and roll big, who's like switchable and good defensively, that guy probably doesn't go in the top 10. Yeah. But he's also like, fluid with the ball in his hands to be able to get yeah. to the basket in ways that other big men aren't really like it. I, again, you talked about being kind of a small ball five and kind of a full-time four. Like I don't know where I fall in that discussion either, but he's interesting. He's athletic, he's talented and he's interesting at the end of the day. I think that's going to win out um, because we're, we're not really going to see him hide from anything this year at South Carolina. Yeah. End of the day, the thing that just worries me is skill level. As long as he's skilled enough to make some things happen in the half court, give some flash plays in the half court, he probably goes in the lottery. Um, But like he needs to be able to show that a little bit more consistently than what we saw. Um, At least like in the AAU circuit, like what I've seen is pretty 
early stages still in his development. And I just, I worry if this was a little bit too soon for him to make the jump to college. Freaking transition though. He's a freaking transition. Total freaking transition. He's going to make a lot of fun plays happen out on the break. Um, Maybe he's further along offensively than what we think too. Um, You know, maybe he he does show some like real passing instincts. Like there's a lot there. Like I don't want to underrate the guy that was like the fucking number one prospect in the 2023 recruiting class. Right. But like there's, there's some stuff there that's going to be worth watching and worth tracking. The last guy here is Jairus Walker. Um, It seems look. I don't know what to do with him. Like he's kind of a four almost like he could end up playing like more on the wing in college, but, or in the NBA, I'm sorry. Uh, in college, it seems like he's going to play like almost as the five man uh, in Houston's closing lineups, potentially. What do you like about Jairus Walker? I like guys who have strength and physicality and use it. Um, yeah. That's just, that's something that if you're physically imposing, and you're not afraid to do that on a consistent basis, you have the key to my heart. I think he's going to live at the free throw line for a guy who's a little bit more of a face-up, bigger option, whether he plays the four or the five. I like him as a passer, actually, Sam. I think he's a decent facilitator in you know delay actions and, and horns, different actions where you can run through him at those elbows or the top of the key area. Not necessarily a facilitator in the put the ball on the floor, handle out of the pick and roll, you know, a little bit of rebound and run, but not his primary function. It's more so that he quickly identifies how to get his teammates open within actions and read coverages. He's a pretty smart basketball player. You combine that with, if you put a smaller guy on him, he's going to absolutely terrorize him on the interior because he is so strong, does have long arms and, and just finishes pretty well at the hoop. And he has a decent enough first step to blow past some stiffer fives that might be guarding him on the perimeter. So I like him as a mismatch option. I'm just, I'm a, in a little bit more of a wait and see approach to know how valuable that's going to be long-term for an NBA franchise and therefore in draft context. Yeah. Agree. Uh, I like how hard he plays. I yeah. would say uh, just consistently is high motor, aggressive, switchable, super tough. Like you bring up the idea of like just using your physicality, like he's a perfect fit with Houston. Couldn't be a better yeah. fit with Houston. You're going to be able to play him at the four, going to be able to play him at the five. Like he's going to be a big part of why that team is just going to suck to play this year. And they always suck to play because their guards are so physical. This year, like they have physical guards at the point of attack, like Shed and Sasser. And then they have like long wings, like Terrence Arsenault and Traymond Mark. And then they've got like this dude in Jarris Walker that is going to be able to switch. He's physical like you're gonna play different pick and roll coverages with it's just gonna be so fucking hard to play them i think that's why i have them at number one in the country entering the season for me Me Uh, they're just gonna be so hard to play every single night um and kelvin sampson's a genius so like that also helps but yeah like offensively like what what do you see jaris's role as like he needs to shoot long term is kind of what it is He does, uh, and I think the biggest reason for that is he's not explosive enough as a finisher or big enough to be really a pick-and-roll type of threat. Like, maybe, you know, sometimes that's that's a a decent role for him, but... Maybe some short-roll stuff? Yeah, I just... I think he fits really well as a slow-down, mismatch type of player, and I don't think there are many teams that are playing that way anymore, let alone 
that he's dynamic enough offensively to be the guy that commands that type of respect and, and building around of an offense. So still a little bit weird of a fit to know exactly where he goes and what he does well at the NBA level. But there are skills that he brings to the table that I do like. And it starts with just how he uses his frame and his motor. Those are, those are things you can't necessarily teach that I'd rather get and work with than have to do vice versa. Our next group here, Adem Bona, James Naji, Baba Miller, Kyle Filipowski, Johan Traor. Where do you want to start with this group? Let's start with Najee. I know we had talked a little bit about, you know, Lively earlier being this traditional screen and roll type of big and, and how high does that necessarily go for you in, in draft terms. I, I think Najee is a true five man. Uh, shows some really good instincts playing internationally for the Barcelona program of being a decent rim protector, moving his feet a little bit laterally in space. Uh, really a screen and roll big on the offensive end of the floor that everything for him has to be gift wrapped layups and dunks at the basket. Don't see a ton of ability for him to put the ball on the floor, let alone create out of the short roll. I think that there's just a ceiling on those guys when it comes to where their draft stock can go, that he's a little bit more of a, you know, late first, early second round type of guy. But I've also seen a lot of times where international big men, like you get burned if you jump in on their tape when they're 17, 18 years old, expect right. this major trajectory that's going to happen and it never really comes. So it's just a big year for, for Najee. I, I like what we've seen thus far, but it's really hard to commit to him being a lock to be a first round guy. Yeah, I actually just don't see him as a first round guy right yeah. now. Um, yeah, it, it's just very limited. Uh, in yep. terms of what his offensive ability is. And th- look, you've probably watched more of him than I have, but what I've seen, I can't really get a handle on how good he is away from the basket in terms of defensive ability. He seems to move pretty well, but like he's moving pretty well against European guards as opposed to like, you know, like when you watched Ishmael Kamagate last year, for instance, right? Like he was twitchier and like you could see like, his like reactivity when he was like out there with guards, like he had no idea how to move his feet. Like he had no real, like, like footwork at all. Uh, no real like polish, I guess with his feet, but he, you could see that like there was more twitchiness in terms of his footwork with Najee. I can't get a handle on if his feet are like just a touch too slow or if they're going to be okay right now. And if they're not like, if it, if it's like a Khalifa job situation where like, you know, his feet are just like not good enough and he's just purely a rim running big, then he's like definitely a second round pick. Yes. Um, I think he's a little bit more mobile than Jop was. Uh, I think that he is a little bit better in terms of like leaping ability than Jop was a little bit more athletic in general, but the limitations for a guy that, is frankly listed at like six foot 10 um, and has like exceptional length, but like it's hard to be six foot 10 and be that guy in the NBA. It just kind of is now. Yeah. Yeah, it very much is. I mean, this is I think part of the reason why I wanted to start with what I think of as a more traditional screen and roll rim protecting type of big is to frame the rest of this conversation around how the, the game and the expectations for that five position in the NBA are really changing. And you have to be able to do more on the offensive or the defensive end, if not both. Well, and let's talk about a Dembona now, because 
this is a guy that I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback coming out of UCLA regarding. Um, I haven't seen enough of them yet to like really have a feel. So this is going to be all you. Uh, him and JJ Starling are probably my two like real blind spots entering this season in like the college basketball space. So tell, tell me about him. Well, Bona was a a blind spot for me, but I knew this podcast was coming up. So I sat down and and watched a little bit more about, you know, four or five games worth of international competition for him. I think playing in the U twenties over there in Europe, liked what I saw from a, a motor and engagement and energy standpoint. He is a little bit undersized to be a five, but he plays with such strength and length that he more than makes up for it. I like his rebound and run ability. I think he is a little bit creative with the ball in his hands. Like he's shown some ability to drive past other big men, to hit spin moves on guys and look really fluid and coordinated when he puts the ball on the deck. Again, we're talking about international competition where he's playing for Turkey. Like how does this translate against really athletic, really skilled bigs that he's going to have to go against night after night? That's what I want to be looking for. I don't know. There are two questions that I have. First is on his ability to play on the perimeter as more than just a, hey, I can blow past my man and get to the rim and finish type of big. The second is his defensive engagement. He is going to be a little bit undersized to be a five, and I don't know if he has the quickness to play as a full-time four at the next level. So he's got to be really pristine with some of his, his placement, his movement abilities, the coverage that he's involved in. I just noticed a lot of times where his effort, his uh, in tune nature wasn't always there, standing up a little bit off ball, not always in the right position that he is caught off guard by a couple of step up ball screens. Like those are things he definitely has to fix to prove to be a one and done prospect. But there are a lot of tools to work there uh, that there's no doubt about that. Let's move to another, I guess you would call him more traditional big, Yoan uh, Treor. Going to Auburn, uh, he is, from what I've seen, more of almost like a post big as opposed to a like real like rim runner or like the way that he'll be played in the NBA. Like a lot of what I've seen is like mid post, like post up attacks, you know, using like touch off the glass and not like a crazy explosive leaper or anything like that. Like it's more ready physically to play college basketball from the jump high level uh, rebounding instincts. What does he develop in terms of like an NBA style skill set? See, I've seen a lot of stuff around him being much more. uh, He defaults to jump shots more than he does trying to use physicality or try to get to the rim, particularly on his post-ups. He's looking for one foot step backs or turn and face jump shots over the top of somebody he's shown in in Auburn's, you know, trips over playing uh, overseas this summer that he has the confidence to be able to step in and shoot trailer threes or or stretch the floor from 18 feet, maybe even a little bit as a catch and shoot type of guy. I think offensively as a result, his role is going to be a little bit more as that of a four on the offensive end of the floor. Defensively, I think he almost has to guard fives at the next level, just with his size and his strength. So maybe there's a way to, to show that he meshes all of that this year at Auburn playing next to a big man like broom. I don't know yet, but uh, definitely have heard a lot of good things about his game from people who have been around him and and definitely know that I'm intrigued as soon as you find somebody of his size that is comfortable and confident shooting the way that he is. 
Yeah. Yeah. Look, like I've seen him shoot a bit to where I get what you're saying. I just also, I don't know if he's like, is it a Walker Kessler situation where like he's going to shoot, you know, 25% from three or whatever this year? Cause we're hoping he shoots. Look, Bruce Pearl will let him shoot. Like there's no question about that. Like he will absolutely let him shoot, especially with the fact that like he's playing next to Joni broom, like, Broom is, by the way, like another like kind of interesting prospect yeah. in and of himself. Yep. Um, extraordinarily productive player. Uh, you know, very, very uh, good rebounder. Plays with a high-level motor. Plays with good intensity. Great, great, great shot blocker. Uh, and it almost like works a little bit better at the four because he's great at rotating over as a shot blocker. So like it does work, I think, next to Treor as a five. Um yeah, interesting. Uh, like, I, again, like this is not a guy I looked at and saw as a one and done. Uh, I saw him more as like a two and done, three and done. Like, there would have yeah. been like a killer Kansas big, or like would have been like a killer, you know, um, you know, a killer at like a school that utilizes bigs. But then again, like if he's trying to get to the NBA, he couldn't have made a better choice than Auburn because Auburn will absolutely like utilize him in the way that he has to be utilized. So, cool. yeah, no doubt. Um, Let's go to Kyle Filipowski, who I think there's like a reasonable chance he leads Duke in scoring this year. Ooh. I think that's my take. Over Whitehead, huh? If Derek Whitehead isn't like totally healthy to start the year, and he's not going to be because of this foot injury, can Filipowski like kind of establish himself a little bit as being like the high level offensive creator? He's certainly incredibly polished as a scorer, great post footwork can put the ball on the deck. Like this is the thing. Like he's not just a big, he is like a guy that can dribble from the perimeter and take advantage of mismatches, especially against smaller guys can shoot a little bit. He, he presents a lot of problems for a college basketball environment. I think. Totally agree with that. I, I love it, not just the fact that he's better with the ball in his hands than people give him credit for. He's more athletic than people give him credit for. He's really competitive, really, really yes. competitive. I had the ability. I was sitting courtside about a year and a half ago at an AAU game where he was playing and taking on Derek Lively, now his teammate at Duke, who was also a teammate with Jalen Duran, who now plays for the Detroit Pistons. And Filipowski was giving them the business, hitting stretch threes, taking the ball right at both of their chests. You know, they were, I don't want to say that they were nonchalant, but they were trying to play off of each other a little bit, lively and durant. And Filipowski just knew it was his time to shine. This was his opportunity to go at those two guys and prove a point, and he did it. He left, I was incredibly impressed by his performance in that game. I think his competitive nature is what's going to help carry him to success at Duke because he's going to thrive in so many different roles. I think that he's going to adapt well to the environment that John Shire puts him in, but also just be a smart, competitive basketball player that figures out, no matter what he's asked to do, a way to make it work. Yeah, and look, like, defensively, there are going to be concerns here. Like, he's just not all that fleet of foot. He's not really a rim protector. There's a chance he's like a college big more than an NBA big, And like that might end up being like a two to three year guy. He brings a lot to the table though, in terms of like exactly what we're talking about in terms of like a guy that can dribble the ball, can pass, can shoot it. I don't think he's like the level to be this good in the NBA is so fucking high. 
Like it's just so ridiculously high and he's not there yet. But like, are we underrating him a little bit? Like as a community, like I think we might be underrating him a little bit as a community. I have him as a late first guy right now. I think of all of the bigs that we're going to be talking about today, like not Victor Weminyam, obviously he's a freak of freaking nature. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Filipowski's the best shooting big that we'll have in this. Yeah, like I, I, I trust him to have a big year more than I trust Kalel Ware to have a big year. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. But I also think that NBA teams are always drafting for a little bit more upside yeah, and roll yeah, yeah. and fit at that level. Like I think Filipowski is going to come in and produce from day one at Duke. There's very little doubt in my mind that he's going to do that. But is he going to show consistency in shooting off ball enough tools to be? more of a delay big if you play him at the five to be a real facilitator and and know that you can hide him or I shouldn't say hide him, but maximize his skills defensively if he plays the five. Uh, Those are things that are just going to be important from an evaluation standpoint to really hammer down this year about Filipowski. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued. I'm very intrigued. I, I think I think he has a huge year, I think is where I'm at. Like, I think he has a really, really big year. Um. The last guy here is Baba Miller. <laughs> and this is just a spins guy. This is like, this is all you just go ahead. I, I don't really have strong takes on him. Like I, I'm fascinated by the skill set and the athletic coordination. I have my concerns about him being at Florida state in terms of him being a one and done. Yep. I also think that like Florida state is a perfect place for him to develop and get better at basketball. Um, g- give me the Baba Miller uh, spiel here because there are going to be very few people who know who Baba Miller is. I feel like Baba Miller is the coach spins Jordan Belfort penny stock investment of the year. Uh, not just for the big category, but for anybody. I am a massive, massive fan of Baba Miller. 18 years old, uh, played in a lower level professional league last year, but still professional basketball. Coming in as 18 years old, about six foot 11 to Florida State a defensive scheme that is well known for wanting length, switchability, and versatility in really one through five positions. Baba Miller has shown flashes of the ability to be a solid rim protector, but also really good in terms of his switchability onto the perimeter. Just incredibly fluid movement patterns and ability with length at somebody at 6'11". Well, and from, sorry to interrupt, but from what I gather, guy that was like six foot one, six foot two, something like that, like four years ago. Right. And grew up as a guard because of it. And then his kind of developed that coordination and hand eye and everything uh, that goes with being that guy. Right. And, and this is where I know, you know, our, our old friend, Matt Penny would always love guys who played quarterbacks. Right. <laughs> This this is my version of that. Somebody who the late growth spurt guy, the late growth spurt guy, developed yeah. guard skills, really learned how to play that way, and then just blossomed all the way up to be six ten, six eleven, and have those freakish skills. If you watch the highlights of what Baba Miller can do, rebound and run, transition playmaker, decently fluid handle behind the back, showing a little bit of slowdown and, and hesitation dribble moves. He can get to the basket and finish. Knows how to attack closeouts. We've seen solid shooting form. He hits some movement shots over the last year, both in terms of like pick and pop and even running off screens. Like as a coach, my mouth is watering and thinking of all the different situations that I can put him in offensively that he can make a positive impact. Bring myself back down to earth for a second. 
he's got a lot to show this year if, in order to be a one-and-done prospect that he can do not just some of these things, but almost all of them on a consistent basis. And Florida State, while it's a perfect schematic fit for him, is somewhat difficult in the fact that Leonard Hamilton always wants to play 10 to 12 guys on a nightly basis. That the opportunities for showing the diversity of skills that Boba Miller brings to the table on the offensive end are going to be somewhat diminished by the fact that his rotation patterns are always going to be a little bit shorter. Uh, I'm ready to buy in on a guy like him just because I think NBA teams can and will develop him to be somebody who succeeds at that level, but he's got to meet us halfway and be able to show a propensity to be efficient in some regard and put all of the skills that he brings to the table on full display. When, when I say this, this is more a comment on me than on Bob Miller. Sure. It's more, I have no idea if he can process basketball at this point. Like it's, it's not one way or another. Uh, like he, it's not, he can't do it. It's not, he can do it. Definitely. It's that, I just don't know if he can yet. Like I, I've watched like a decent amount of him, and my take is basically like, I have no idea how this is going to go this year. Like <laughs> there, there's a real chance that like this ends with him playing ten minutes a night at Florida yeah. State, I think. Yep. or fewer. Yeah, there's no doubt. Yeah. But guys, you know that are this young, he's still very, very young, uh, and that have these late growth spurts, like he did. They tend to have very strange growth trajectories in terms of like learning to use your body differently. Like it's in it's a proprioception thing. It's like a, you know, figuring out where your limbs are and like how long you are thing. Like he's still probably learning on some level, like how to use his frame. Right. So it's, it's a totally different ball game with him. And I just don't know what to expect, I guess is what I would say. Could end up being like a lottery pick could end up being at Florida state next year pretty easily. I think. Yep, and uh, there's some middle ground in there, but I think it's closer to an either-or in that type of situation. Like, he's either knocking on the door of the lottery and probably an intriguing middle-of-the-first-round pick, or he's just way too raw, needs to go back to Florida State, and has a lot to prove. Yep. Okay. Next group here, and this will be just kind of – I don't know how deep we want to get into these guys. A lot of these guys are just extremely well-known at this point. Right. Oscar Shibway, the national player of the year last year. Deron Holmes, Colin Castleton, Armando Baycott, Drew Timmy, Trace Jackson Davis, Coleman Hawkins, Ryan Kalkbrenner, Mohamed Gaye, uh, Kauterichi, uh, Kauterichi, Kauterichi. Uh, he, KO at Memphis, who was at uh, UTA last year. Awesome player that I just don't know how to say his name. My apologies. KO. Um, Damian Collins, Pete Nance, Hunter Dickinson, Adama Sonogo, Zach Eady, Trayvon, Brazil. Uh, you know, just a big group of dudes here. Yeah. A and big look, group of high level college producers. Um, mostly that, but also like high upside guys. Yeah. I guess we should talk about Oscar because he's the national player of the year reigning. Um, very high motor player creates a ton of offensive possessions. I just don't, uh, he needs to get way better on defense for me to like really think of him as an NBA player. Yeah. And, and Sam, I think this is probably the right time for me to interject here a little bit with when we're talking about first round draft picks for big men, it's very, very rare to see somebody who's a multiple year college player end up 
getting to be a big man drafted in the first round. That the yeah. learning curve that goes into becoming a great pick and roll defender at the NBA level is probably about a year and a half to two years, if not longer. And you don't want to age yourself out of somebody's prime by, you know, putting all of the time and, and, and effort into that development when you get them when they're 21. Now, all of a sudden, they're 24 years old by the time you're on the backside of that. So NBA teams want to draft younger for big men or are very comfortable punting it down the road for second round type of flyers. Well, and, and I'll give you the guys here. So last year, Mark Williams and Walker Kessler were both sophomores that were taken yeah. in the first round. Christian Coloco was a junior that was taken in the first round. Uh, probably the best case scenario, yeah. right, was Coloco as a junior in terms of like uh, returnees, like multiple years. Kai Jones was a sophomore at um, at Texas when he was selected. Jeremiah Robinson Earl was a sophomore at Villanova when he was selected in the first round. Nimi Keita went, what, like 40th? 45th something like that yep. um multi-year returner to utah state uh jalen smith was a sophomore at maryland you know uh, it gets hard like yudoka Azabuke went 27th overall that was bad selection um daniel Turu was a sophomore he went 33rd overall, it looks like. Nick Richards was a junior, went 42nd overall. Has shown some occasional like backup center flashes at the very least. Then we're going back to 2019. Uh, I mean, Goga Batadze was like a multi-year Europe guy. Um, Fiondu Cabangele was an older guy that was a sophomore at Florida State. Nick Claxton was a sophomore at Georgia. Bruno Fernando, sophomore at Maryland. Daniel Gafford, sophomore at Arkansas from 2019 to 2022. So the last four drafts, you're basically getting like two to three top 40 picks that are uh, that are sophomores or older. And very rarely are they juniors. Right. And I think that that goes to Spins's point. Um, it, it, it's... It's hard. It, it, once you get up to this age is a big, it, it becomes hard. I will say there are some guys I'm interested in this year. I think that bigs have stayed in college a little bit longer now because of the NIL opportunities that are available to them. And it's possible this could be a draft that has some real depth in terms of bigs. Like Armando Baycott in previous years would not have stayed. It, North Carolina, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but because he's able to make that Outer Banks money, let's call it, uh, <laughs> like there's a real, real chance for him to have the ability to go top 45 this year, something like that, if things really broke right for him. Um, Shibway is a strange one. Because Oscar yeah. is clearly making like well into seven figures, let's call it, uh, based off of all of the reporting. And one national player of the year. But like I, I don't know how much his game translates to the next level. Right. Right. Yeah. The defensive concerns are real. And like any team, whether it's college or pro, that has Oscar Shibwe has to lean into just letting him be a monster on the glass on both ends, particularly on the offensive end. Like you want him within six to eight feet of the basket when a shot goes up. So you've got to drastically change the way that you scheme for that. Like 
Is Oscar impactful? Yes. Is he really athletic and has some tools you can work with? Yes. But there's a lot of stylistic fix, fit stuff that just doesn't mesh with the current NBA game. I, I just... Where, where I struggle with Oscar is I know that he was like a finalist for defensive player of the year or whatever. Go back and watch the St. Peter's tape. Like it, it's clear that he's like not one of the best defenders in college basketball and not one of the best defenders in the sec. Even like go watch his tape compared to Colin Castleton's tape at Florida. Cause that's a guy I've been watching a decent amount of recently. Um, Colin Castleton is a much better defensive player than he is. Yeah. Colin Castleton moves better in space. He's actually like a legit, like switchable. If you get him on an Island defender, like he causes problems for opposing yeah. players. Um, he's a somewhat legit shot blocker. Uh, I worry about how that'll translate to the next level, but sure. like for the college game, he's a very real shot blocker. Um, Oscar rebounds and ends possessions, but like there's just more to it than rebounding and ending possessions and like using your length and getting into passing lanes to get deflections. Um, I thought it was pretty crazy that Oscar got some of the defensive accolades that he did last year. Uh, now Oscar has intense value in terms of like the possession count, right? Yeah. Uh, he just ends possessions for you and he creates possessions for you. Um, but like he doesn't really create his own shot. He's more his, his ability to create shots is like by creating those possessions and then getting putbacks, right? Like, yeah. In some vein, it's really valuable because you don't have to run anything for him. That's what makes him really useful, right? right? Um, and that's what I think like his best NBA skill will be like. Go create possessions and possessions. We don't have to run anything for you. Just make shit happen. Like almost like a Kenneth Fareed type. Know, Reggie but, Evans comes to mind. Right. Would those guys play in the NBA today? Right. That's the big question. That's my question. Yeah. I'm not totally sure if they would. Um, like Kenneth Fareed was out of the NBA by the time he was what, like 27, 28? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I think like I'll, I'll look at when he was like actually out of the NBA. He's, he's only 32 right now and he hasn't been in the NBA for three years. So yeah, uh, and then the, those last two years, by the way, he played like a combined like 50 games. So. I don't know, man. Uh, it, it, the game has just changed so drastically. Uh, Oscar is, you know, incredibly valuable. Like I probably wouldn't have voted for him for national player of the year, but he's undeniably a first team all American. Uh, and one of the like best players in college basketball point blank period. But what, what is it in the NBA? I don't really know. To be yeah. honest, no position that we talk about has a more difficult or more uh, stylistic clash from college to the NBA than big yeah. men do. That's just it's just the the nature of the beast. And that's you know we can talk about Drew Timmy here, somebody who is an unbelievable yeah. post up threat and the ideal one on one scorer down in the block in college. But when you're what six foot eight. How many post up reps are you no, going to get no, in the no, NBA? No, he, he's he's like six ten. He's bigger he's 6'10". than that. He's bigger than that. Yeah, and, and has like a seven three wingspan or something. It, he's he's weirdly big and weirdly long. Yeah, he's uh, a lot bigger than I thought. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, but how how many post up reps does anybody really get on the NBA, and how dominant do you have to be in order to get those? So here here will be here's my thing on Timmy. I actually like Timmy a little bit more than I like Oscar. 
is an okay. NBA player. Uh, Drew, everyone talks about the post-ups with Drew. Where Drew is actually best is in ball screens. Drew is a monster ball, ball screen big because of his ability to dribble, put the ball on the ground. He can make decisions as a passer. He can play high-low as he showed last year with Chet. And he can actually like short roll and attack. Like he has real screen diversity in terms of being able to do different things out of ball screens that will make him valuable in the NBA. Now, like he needs to get way better on defense, like to even have a chance. But I think his game is a little bit more translatable to the offensive end than Oscars is. Totally agree. And and not just with the, the screen diversity you talk about. I love his little floater that he has yeah. when he catches off yep. the short roll. Like he's a real yep. scoring threat from eight to 12 feet. And that's sure. a really difficult position for NBA bigs to account for when you're consistent in that area, catching off of a ball screen. I agree with you. Like, I think there are ways that his offense can translate. I'm not ready to completely abandon the the idea of him becoming a three point shooter. Uh, I'm not ready to no, hang I'm my hat either. on it. But I'm not ready. He, to well, you made it. like four threes in the combine game. Combine game, right? Dude. That's that's yeah. what has the intrigue up right here. So, like, is there a pathway for Drew Timmy to make it? Absolutely, there is. But yeah, man, is there going to have to be a ton of growth on the defensive end in order for that to be a worthwhile investment? Probably anywhere in the top forty or forty-five of draft. Yeah, yeah, I think he will get drafted for what it's worth, but yeah. I don't think he'll get. I don't think it'll be top forty. Um, a guy that I think could go in the top forty is Deron Holmes. And this is not the last time that you guys will hear the name Deron Holmes on this podcast. Winky, winky for the future here coming up. Um, Deron Holmes is six foot 10, really active. His superpower on defense is his ability to block jump shots. He is the best blocker of jump shots that I have seen for a big since Robert Williams. Wow. High praise. He's unbelievable at it. Like, it's crazy. He is so, so good at it. Uh, His timing on it, his ability to contest, like he knows exactly when to like mirror his jump with the uh, player going up for the jumper. It's he's a real threat as a shot blocker on jump shots. I I am a I am a fan of Deron Holmes, but like he's also a really underrated passer, I think, Mm -hmm. as well. Um, and he also can move his feet in space. Like he actually has a lot of the skills that we talk about in terms of being able to be a modern big. He's just six foot ten. Like that's what makes it a little bit harder. And and not a freak athlete. Like a good athlete, but not this freakish pogo stick that a lot of guys who are a little bit smaller tend to be to be impactful in the offense. He's like a da- he's a Daniel Gafferty athlete. Yeah. As opposed and- to like, you know, total like quick twitch athlete right yeah um you know sixth most dunks in college basketball last season like real gets off the floor quickly i guess is what i would say yeah Yeah. finished the season on a really high note he looked incredible in the final like 10 or so games that that dayton played in last year which is always a positive sign for me of somebody who's about to take a leap going from freshman to sophomore year he's going to be a sophomore sam so he fits into the timeline that you just outlined by going through the last right. few drafts of being somebody that could potentially sneak their way into that top 40 ish range. Uh, the thing that always caught my eye about Holmes is that he's very receptive to coaching in a lot of the small habits that he has, you know, he knows yeah. where to roll to. He knows exactly uh, what his yeah. role is going to be 
on the basketball court. He has the catch high, keep high thing for bigs that is so crucial. He never catches it above his head and dips it below his waist. He just catches it yep. there and quickly finishes yep. up near the basket. All those little things are going to help him just be productive and, and create separation amongst him and some other bigs. I like Holmes a lot. I think that's a really smart pick on your end. Yeah, I think he's like a top 40-ish guy for yeah. me entering the year. Um, I don't know that I quite have him in the top 30, but uh, he is a guy that I think is like a real potential um, interesting guy to track this year. Yeah. Uh, I talked a little bit about Colin Castleton. I like Colin a little bit. Um, Trace Jackson Davis is another one, like super leaper, very productive. He has to shoot or pass. He has to do one of those two things, I think, to be an NBA player. And there's just been year after year where we've been promised that he's going to show that he does both at Indiana and then he does neither. So I'm just, you know, fool me once, shame on you. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to be sold by the film, not by what I hear. The super athletes, let's call this group, Coleman Hawkins, Muhammad Gaye, Cotterici, uh, and Damian Collins. Any names stand out there? Um, I think Damian Collins, just because we're going to be somewhat um, shielded from seeing him in what I think is the ideal role for him to play in, which is more of a screen and roll type of thing. Because Kentucky has Oscar, because they don't have the greatest floor spacing in the world, it's really hard to get consistent pick and roll reps in that offense. So I think Collins is just somewhat miscast on the college team that he's on, which is going to make him a little bit more difficult of an eval or a guy who could just simply pop more at the next level. But he is the definition of a pogo stick, Sam. That guy can get off the ground in a hurry. I am a big fan. I'm yeah. a big fan of Cotterici in terms of his just leaping ability. I'm a big fan of Damian Collins as well. I mean, that guy, like he's like jumping above the square a lot of the time. Like that's the difference between him and Cotterici is like, Cotterici like doesn't get above the square. It feels like like Damian Collins, like his whole hand is above the square. It feels like, um, but I, I like what uh, Cotterici at Memphis will be able to do this year. I yeah. like Muhammad Gaye almost as like, uh, like a more polished, like he's seven foot five. He's more agile laterally than these guys. It feels like, um, and maybe can guard in space a little bit more while also being a higher level uh, rim protector. There's, there's just enough there. We're, we're like diving deep into the weeds on some of these guys. No, we're, we're deep, deep, deep into the wings right here. And, and look, you brought up Coleman Hawkins. Like, I think he's the intriguing one here because I think of all of them, he's the one that can shoot it. And that's, yeah. that's going to be the intriguing thing to me. Super athletes who can shoot the ball a little bit. Like there's some tools there that I would, I would want to explore. Yeah. Uh, Zach Eady, seven foot four, you know, it's physical, tough, strong. Any thoughts? You know, again, translatability of his game. Can he move his feet enough for the NBA level? Is he that dominant of a low post score that he's going to deserve the ball in those situations moving forward? Just some things that are a little bit harder for me to wrap my head around of not just can he do them, but is it worth drafting a guy like that? Because you got to tailor make your style to how he plays. Hunter Dickinson, uh, the thing that I, so I will give Hunter, Hunter Dickinson a lot of credit here. Uh, he took a leap last year. Yeah. Like he didn't just like become the post guy. He is now like a capable shooter. 
he's a really good passer yes. now. Like his ability to process and make plays is really high level. I, I like Hunter, not quite as an NBA player, but like the more I think about it, the more he probably should be like the Big Ten preseason player of the year. And like, yeah. Yeah. I, I would anticipate he has a monster, monster season. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And I think that Juwan Howard is a really good teacher of angles and yeah. stuff on the defensive end of the floor. Like if there's anyone that can make him competent at the collegiate level defensively and prepare him for pro basketball, it's going to be Juwan. Uh, is there anyone else we need to get to here? Honestly, we've talked about Trayvon Brazil recently. Yep. I like Pete Nance. Pete Nance is like an interesting shooter. He's just not quite as twitchy as Larry was. Right. Um, similar like high feel you know, really, really sharp player. He's a killer get for North Carolina. Definitely a pro player. Um, I think that's all I've got, Adam. Yeah, that's, that pretty much checks every box for me. And look, there are always going to be guys who are productive at the college level as big men who just put up the numbers and you ask yourself, you know, middle of January, is this guy anything? Like, certainly yeah. there will be those moments where we have to go back to the drawing board and watch the film and see what that's all about. But from a from a preseason perspective, like I like kind of the group that we have here. You know what? There there is one guy we should talk about, F.A. Abigidi. Um Yeah. F.A. being uh with the G League Ignite, uh he is gonna get real he's gonna get fed by Scoot in ball screens constantly. And the question with F.A. is not like talent, it's injury history. He just has like significant knee issues. Uh in his past that I think probably scares off teams, but like real leaper, great hands, good athlete has potential to shoot it. Good defensive instincts. There's a lot of talent there. Yep. And we talked about this on our uh, ignite and metropolitans kind of preview episode that, you know, we've been talking now for years about Abigidi potentially shooting that there's touch, there's evidence of this, there's some form, but like, He's never really done it consistently. This is year three of him post high school where, you know, two years at Washington state. And now here he has to shoot it or else I'm just, you kind of have to abandon that being part of the long-term appeal. Yeah. Agree. Agree. Uh, Spins. Have you watched anything interesting in your illness? <laughs> well, not much because I've been, uh, been pushing through and still working all week. So no, uh, no films or TV shows really for me here. But uh, I know it's still horror season for you, so fire away some some spicy takes on that. <sighs> I saw Halloween ends. It's a disappointment. Oh no! My take is that if you have what's supposed to be the last movie in the Michael Myers saga, you should use Michael Myers in that movie. That that's what I will say about Halloween ends. I don't want to give too much away. I know that it just came out last week. I know that there are spoilers, but like, I think that, uh, yeah, that was the, that was, that was the main disappointment with that one. Uh, were, as Bill Simmons was... eloquently put it on his feed. Uh, you have to let Myers cook, uh, which is like the most like Bill Simmons terminology ever, but I agree. You got to let Myers cook. Well, you were so excited to see that too. I'm, I'm disappointed for you that it wasn't as yeah. all that you cracked up. One of my favorite, like I said, like the first Halloween is one of my favorite movies ever. And uh, for it to end like this is 
real uh real real train wreck in my opinion and by the like the david gordon green group that made this movie is also rebooting the exorcist next year apparently uh i i have some worries about that as well Um, as long as there's no vomiting guacamole then it might be better than the original but um, i'm not holding my breath either um i saw a few other horror movies um saw Deadstream, which is like this weird shutter movie that's like uh you know guy live streams himself in a haunted house kind of thing that was pretty fun um i saw god's country with tandy newton that was actually just really good people should watch that uh very well shot tandy newton like was absolutely incredible in it it's just it's a thriller like definitely see that um i think we talked about smile last week didn't we yeah yeah uh and then what else have i seen i saw a spanish movie called piggy uh that is really interesting as well and i almost don't want to say anything i think people should go in like not knowing what it's about um it does a really interesting job of like meshing a few different genres of like grindhousey horror and thriller and like almost like search for like the truth movie kind of thing. Like there, there's, there's a lot going on. Really, really interesting movie. Really interesting movie. Interesting. I'll keep my, you know what? That may be on my list for this coming week. My college roommates coming down next weekend. He's a big movie guy. So piggy that's, I'll make sure we watch that. I'm trying to think what, what would I suggest for you and your college roommate? that are big movie guys. Um, I don't, I would say smile. I would watch smile ahead of that for what it's worth. Smile Fair is enough. fucked up and fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm into um, that. Yeah. Yeah. So you have, we have the NBA season coming up. We've got, uh, rookies that will be debuting. That will be our podcast next week. We will yeah. do like a first week, like diving into rookies and diving into like some of the young players around the league, diving, seeing what happens there. Um, either Wednesday or Thursday, I will have like an opening night thing that I do. I'm just not sure what it'll be, basically. Um, not sure if it'll be like the first night. Not, I might do two nights. Like I'm not, I'm not real sure yet, but it'll be a, um, like opening night breakdown of the NBA, whether or not it's the first opening night or like the second opening night where more teams play. We'll see, but yeah, it's officially the NBA season. This podcast is about to kick into gear folks. Let's go. Yes, let's go. And as much as anything, I want to thank the people for listening. Uh, Just the level to which the podcast has grown over the course of the summer when there is like nothing happening is pretty substantial. And uh, now that there's actual basketball happening, I couldn't be more excited. Like right now, the podcast among all basketball podcasts um, on the internet is ranked 11th. And that's before this episode goes live. So it'll spike even further. So, um, you know, thank you so much for all of that, obviously. And you can expect a lot of really, really good stuff. Like I'm probably going to stream a little bit more after games. So I would definitely recommend subscribing to this channel and, watching a little bit more go to game theory uh podcast with sam vicini on youtube uh you will be able to see that and know when i go live more often um but yeah it's current plan right now that's what i've got spins you have anything else 
I'm just ready for NBA basketball. Uh, you know, it's a staple of the Game Theory podcast here and, and all the work that you have put in to grow this. Obviously, the, the fusing of draft talk with current NBA product is so important. So I am trying to do my part to keep up with the, <laughs> the NBA as best I can. I know I've been a little bit more draft-centric over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, it's exciting for me. I get to work with SB Nation this year and do some yeah some national coverage. So that's going to be my way of forcing myself to watch more NBA games <laughs> so that you and I can have interesting conversations here on the pod. But, uh, again, the, all, the you have done an unbelievable job cultivating an audience and growing the, the reach of this podcast over the last several years, let alone just, you know, this past summer. And uh, I am just honored to, to be here with you in that. But, uh, you know, you you are certainly deserving to be in that territory. Yeah, I'm just very uh, thankful that, you know, more people are listening and more people have come for the party and come for fun uh, and are willing to jump in and have some fun breaking down basketball with us. So, uh, yeah, the fact that it's grown as much as it has over the summer is just you know, crazy to me. So now that we have actual basketball, couldn't be more excited to get into it. Uh, we just podcasted for two hours, Spins. Uh, tell the people where they can find you on the internet. Yeah, follow me on Twitter at the box and one underscore on YouTube, Adam Spinella, or my Substack page, theboxandone.substack.com. We've got all of our NBA season previews going up right now over the next two, two plus weeks as we get ready for the college season. We'll have a slew of college season previews and prospect previews going out. I actually just sat down this morning and scheduled out 17 articles to be released between now and November 7th. So I am like Wild. pre-written. All I can do is go in there and make some edits if there's some changes that go on. Very relieving feeling, but uh, it's it's time, man. It's basketball season. I'm so excited. Yeah, and for what it's worth, I've got a couple of exciting things that will be happening Um on the podcast feed on the YouTube channel and on the athletic, like kind of synergized with, you know, those three things basically across the board. Um, you guys will see what it is once it debuts. I don't think it'll be this week. I think it will probably be next week because what it's October 17th. Yeah. It'll probably be like mid next week, not this, you know, 18th through the 24th week. It'll be the next week after that, but keep it locked here. Until next time, we'll talk soon.